You know, if you're visiting today and you're thinking, oh, wow, what an interesting church. They picked this very odd passage from Revelation. And it's, it's because we are in the middle of a sermon series on the book of Revelation. And uh, this is, I think, a very uh, uh, kind of a little bit disturbing, a little shocking, very uh, graphic. But it's a really important passage. And I'd like for you to give your attention to the reading of God's word. Our reading this morning is from the book of Revelation, chapters 15 and 16. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits, performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. 
Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, um, we come this morning uh, before your holy uh, word, and we ask that uh, your spirit would allow us to see and hear the good news you have for us, even in this very um, this heavy passage. We pray that we would be able to connect to Jesus and all that he's done this morning, and we ask this in your son's name, amen. Um, as we continue to make our way through this last book of the Bible, uh, through it's what the Apostle John calls the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's where the book Revelation comes from. The first word of the book is apocalypse, and it simply means, and we've been saying this all the time, every week almost, it means unveiling. It's like lifting the covers off of something or pulling back a curtain. And the question is, what is it unveiling? You know, because Jesus is actually in the visions that he's giving the Apostle John, lifting the covers off the flow of history that ordinarily we would not be able to see. And as the book has progressed, the vision has started to focus on this climactic judgment of God. The great day of God is coming. The return of Jesus, his second coming, all his promises coming true. And we are going to get to, and I promise, the new heavens and the new earth soon in the weeks to come. But in order to get there, you have to get through this heavy topic of God's wrath and judgment. And each week that I've preached, I've tried to uh, say something about how to read the book of Revelation. And this week, I want to introduce you to a theological idea. And the term, it's a technical term. Is called recapitulation. And it's basically a fancy theological word for repetition. Okay? So just think of it as repetition. And an example of recapitulation are the Gospels themselves. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which tell the story of the life of Jesus, right? From four different perspectives to give us a more complete picture of who Jesus is and why he came. In a similar way, the seven bowls that we're looking at today that we just heard read, are a recapitulation of the seven seals. So if you've been here, you know that chapter 6 to 8, I preach about the seven seals. And then we got to a thing called the seven trumpets. I preached on that one too, 8 to 11, not David. I don't know how I got all the seven. So I got the seals, I got the trumpets, and we're going to do the bowls today. But this is important because this means that these are not three separate continual historical sequences of 21 events, you know, 777. It is the same reality seen from different perspectives. And again, I used this illustration last week, but it's really helpful, which is think of this if you were watching like a football game and there is a contested play and instant replay begins to show you that play in multiple angles so that you can stitch them together to get a complete picture. 
So the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls are different perspectives of the same event, but they also have a little bit of progress. And it's doing this because it's trying to show us something, that God's judgment, his wrath, his victory, over and over again, is trying to say these are important and you need to learn and hear and see because this is crucial to understanding how the new heavens and the new earth actually come. Now, this means the book, the book of Revelation, is not a linear account of history, right? It isn't meant to be looked at as a timeline to locate our precise moment in redemptive history, as some have tried to do. And we see today in Revelation 16, 15, here's Jesus himself kind of interrupting, and he says this, Behold, I am coming like a thief. He says this actually in the Gospels, right? Blessed is the one who stays awake. So what is Jesus saying when he says this? He's saying, pay attention, stay awake. I'm like a thief, meaning I'm not going to tell you I'm going to come to your house Thursday night at 10 p.m. to rob it. Thieves don't do that, right? What's his point? Stay awake. Be alert. Now, all of these metaphors and images here, does this mean we should take the images of the bowls and plagues as only metaphor and that we're not going to have a real judgment? I don't think that's the case either. And let me put it to you this way. I think the Apostle John is using images to describe his vision in the same way Jesus used his parables. And, you know, Jesus sometimes says in words like, God loves you, he accepts you, he forgives you, he embraces you. But he also sometimes says, let me tell you a story about a waiting father who welcomes home his prodigal son and he sees him far away and he runs to him. He embraces him. He kisses him. He welcomes him before he even says a word. Jesus tells a story. Why? Because he's trying to point to something that is deeply true about the beauty and the love of God. In the same way, Jesus told scary stories sometimes uh, about the disaster of rejecting God. And he talks about hell. Actually, he talked about hell a lot more than he talked about heaven. And in those places, he talks about there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He talks about fire, darkness. Again, these are pictures pointing to an unimaginable reality for us. But they're meant to show us something that is true. And this is what's happening here with these seven bowls. The bowls are telling us God's judgment, his wrath is coming. This world is passing away. God's kingdom is going to come. The new heavens and the new earth. New Jerusalem. But in order to get there, God has to make things right and deal with evil. See? Now, I want to ask you, when you hear the word wrath, the wrath of God, what does that evoke in you? What is this? You know, especially if you're not a Christian, and uh, maybe this might be helpful for you to hear, and you've been asking this question, or this saying, this statement, which is, I don't really believe in a God of wrath or judgment. If there is a God, I have to believe he's a God of grace, of love. He accepts everyone. He welcomes everyone. And I hope as we talk about this, I hope to show you that logically you don't need to separate those out, bifurcate those. Because when the Bible talks about the wrath of God, 
It's not referring to something arbitrary, intense, emotional, like an outburst of anger that you or I might have when we think of the word wrath. It's not like the gods and the goddesses of Roman and Greek mythology, you know, a little bit capricious. It's not talking about an irrational, spiteful, unmeasured anger in chapter 15, verse 1, or chapter 16, verse 1, when it talks about wrath. So what is it referring to then? Because those are the things I think that we begin to start off with. But, you know, David mentioned Leon Morris's quote that's in the front of the bulletin. Um, And I think this has been really helpful to try to understand the wrath of God. He talks about the wrath of God being God's strong and settled opposition. This is God's opposition to all that is evil arising out of God's very nature. It's something he has a burning zeal for, what is right and what is just. It's his settled opposition to all that is wrong. So right away, you begin to see it's something different. It's the promise that one day God, the creator, is going to set everything right. He has a burning zeal for this. That one day there will be complete justice. That judging the evil that is out there, that is trying to harm you, that we heard about last week that David talked about in, you know, chapters 13, 14. God, in his judgment, is trying to answer that thing we keep saying, Lord, when are you going to address this? You keep saying you draw near to the brokenhearted. You know all of our tears. You know the injustice we've experienced or the suffering or the martyrdom or anything like that. And God's answer is not just, hey, I'm coming next to you. But he's saying, one day, I am actually going to judge this. So think about that. Because if you've experienced injustice, and I think we all have to some degree, or if your heart's been broken for the injustice in this world, you know what? This is really, really good news. It's a hidden word of hope in this word, wrath. That one day God will sort it all out. Consider the oppression of the poor, trafficking of the vulnerable, racist discrimination, anything you can think of that goes into this bucket, like, God, why don't you do something? God is saying, I'm going to do something. I have a settled opposition to all that is evil. And his promise is, I'm going to make it right. You know, J.I. Packer, uh, he's a famous Christian author, and in his book, Knowing God, he talks about the wrath of God in this way. He says God's wrath is something which people choose for themselves. Isn't that an interesting way to talk about it? Before hell is an experience inflicted by God, it is the safe for which man himself opts by retreating from the light which God shines in his heart to lead him to himself. All that God does in his judicial action, whether in this life or the next, is to show the one who chooses not to believe the full implication of the choice he has made. And the basic choice is either to respond to the summons of Christ, who says to all people, come to me and learn from me and find rest for your souls. Come to me or try to save your own life by following your own way. And Packer concludes, no one stands under the wrath of God except those who have chosen to do so. 
The essence of God's action and wrath is giving people what they choose. And this freedom may seem terrifying to us, but it is perfectly just. So what Packer is trying to say is the Bible actually says judgment and wrath is not something that just God arbitrarily throws out there. It is the logical, final, and just conclusion to our choices to say, God, I want a life apart from you. And if that's the case, he's saying, at the end of time, when we stand before him on that great day, he's saying, I'm going to give you your wish. I would have liked you to come and be in my family. But you're saying, no, I've been waiting. I want you to come. But hey, the time has come. I'll let you have what you want. God is saying, that is judgment. You know, this means, actually, evil and rebellion doesn't always look always terrible. It's sometimes very mundane, basic. It's the boring, maybe, choices we make every single day that feel natural to us. You know, to indulge our anger, to want to be entitled to the way I want things. I want to live according to my wisdom. My wishes, I want God to leave me alone. And the question that we're always wrestling every day with is, will I follow God's way or am I going to have my way? That is the essence and the heart of what it means to have a life apart from God. Now, if that's what the wrath of God is, I think that's probably a little different than what you were thinking about. That's my hope. But I think that's what the Bible is actually teaching us. Now, I want us to look at chapter 16 here because I actually want to look at the bowls themselves. And read how it begins. It says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels. So there's a voice coming from inside the temple. And that's God himself telling the angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. This is the wrath of God. So bowl number one is poured out on the earth and painful sores come upon those who worship the beast and bear his mark. Bowl number two is poured out into the sea. And what happens to the sea? It becomes blood. Everything in it dies. Bowl number three is dumped into the rivers and the springs of water. Notice that's fresh water. So what does that become? It becomes blood. Bowl number four is poured out on the sun. And you begin to understand something here. The earth, the sea, the rivers, the springs, and now the sun, they are brought to judgment. And think about what's going on here. Um, You have people inflicted physically. You have blood. You know, for the people of God, the blood of the lamb is actually a path toward healing and cleansing. And here, the blood becomes a sign of judgment, just like it was in Egypt. In the sea and in the waters. And then you have this thing with the sun. What is this? The sun. People are scorched by the sun. And it's interesting because if you go back to chapter 7, verse 16. For the people of God, it says the sun shall not strike them. All of these judgments are being pointed toward those who are apart from God. And you see all of these things starting to come together. And think about the sun again. 
You know, these are images for the first hearers and readers of Revelation would all have thought about the Exodus. Ezekiel and Isaiah. Let me read you Isaiah 66, last chapter of Isaiah. And it's talking about the judgment of God. And it says this in verse 15. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh. And those slain by the Lord shall be many. You see what is happening? All of these things that's been talked about in the Old Testament are now coming true. All the times that God has promised his people, I am going to do something, he's actually making happen in this vision. So we get to the fifth bowl. It's poured out on the throne of the beast. Remember the beast from last week, if you were here? It is the powers, the principalities, and evil itself. And God is pouring judgment on the beast and on the throne. And what happens? Darkness now covers the earth. And then in verse 10, which is, I think it was, it's a very uh, stark verse. The people are plunged into darkness, and what do they do? Gnawed their tongues in anguish and curse the God of heaven for their pain and their sores. Bowl six is dumped out into the river Euphrates. The river dries up, and it's an echo of the Old Testament. When the Red Sea is dried up so the people of Israel can cross in order to do what? To be saved. But here in this situation, the river Euphrates is the far eastern river that people know. It goes dry so that all the enemies can cross over. It's like your protection is gone. Do you understand what's going on here? And then bowl number seven. It's thrown into the air and it says, it is done. These are, these are very, very stark images of the judgment that John sees in his vision. And the question I want to ask you is, who is this judgment for? Who is this for? Because in verse 2 of chapter 16, it says, it's the people who bore the mark of the beast and worship its image. Those who said no to God and who are aligned with the beast. Verse 9 tells us, it's those who curse the name of God and did not repent and give him glory. Verse 10, it talks about, again, the throne of the beast. Verse 11 is what? For the people who curse the God of heaven, and they did not repent of their deeds. It's the people who are saying, I want a life apart from God. I don't want to repent. I'm going to do my own thing. And maybe you're thinking, gosh, even if that's the case, this judgment, it's so harsh. I mean, sores on the body and all this stuff. Look, listen. But go back with me to chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, where there is this song of Moses, the song of the Lamb, it says, and listen to what is being sung. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. Your righteous acts have been revealed. You know who sings this? In verse 2, it tells us it's those who have conquered the beast. Those who have been faithful to God unto the end. Those who have been martyred, who've been crying out, 
when are you going to avenge us and set everything right? Those who experience injustice, they are the one praising God for what? Just and true are your ways. God, everything you do is righteous. And you go to chapter 16, verse 5, there's another song from the angel who poured out the waters, the judgment on the waters. And the angel says, just are you, O holy one, who is and who was. For you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets. These are the people who martyred God's people. And you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. It's what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. You know what they're doing? The angels and the people of God, they are praising God because he is just. He is true. He is righteous. God is not like us in his wrath. His punishment always fits the crime. He has collected our tears in his bottles, it tells us in Psalm 56. He has drawn near to the brokenhearted. He has heard the cries of his people. And God is saying, I am going to do something about it. You know, this is hard for us to understand because I think our judgments are never perfect. You know what I'm talking about? We are either always too severe or too lenient. We are never 100% just. And we think God is like us. You know, because with me, I know how this goes, and I'm, I'm guessing it's for you. It's never an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Because when I'm hurt, and I'm guessing this is the same for you, when you are hurt, when we experience injustice, you know what? I usually want an eye, a tooth, and in hand. You know, like, you want more. If I lost an eye, I want your tooth, eye, and a hand. You want your pound of flesh, and then some, right? We do this financially, emotionally. We don't just want to be made whole. We want more. We want more punishment. I want that person to suffer. And oftentimes, we do this sometimes in our friendships, with our spouses, coworkers, you know, roommates, you name it. And perhaps... You think this is how God judges. Or, on the other hand, there's something serious, but you just say, ah, that's not a big deal. Why are you getting on my case? You're overreacting. We take things too lightly, you know? But with God, his justice is 100% perfect. And we worship him for it because he's the only one we can trust to be our actual judge. Now, I think that's good news. That God actually knows your pains, knows your suffering, and his promise is, I am going to do something about it. Did you notice there's more actual good news in here if you look for it? The last verse I have printed, verse 17, it says, The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. It is done. Now, you could also translate that from the Greek to it is finished. This is a little subtle, but this is echoing the gospel of John. Because in the gospel of John, and only in the gospel of John, do you remember what Jesus actually says as his last words on the cross? 
It is finished. And you know, to the original hearers and the readers, they knew exactly what this was referring to. The last words of Jesus on the cross. What is finished? What was accomplished? Everything that needs to be done for unholy people to come into the presence of a holy God, right? That is completed. Everything, every debt we owed has been paid. It's done. And on the cross, God's zeal, his burning zeal to do what is right and just, came together with God's desire to love and restore the world to himself. You know why? Because he's a good father. He's a good God. See, we are all under judgment by nature. Every single one of us. We are all guilty before God. We don't like to talk about that too much today. But in a place like Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, it says, By nature, we are children of wrath. Why? Because we follow the course of the world. And if we go back and ask the question, who deserves the wrath of God? Maybe we begin with Larry Nasser, Jeffrey Epstein, uh, dare I say Elizabeth Holmes, I don't know. Um, but who deserves the wrath of God? You and I do, okay? This should have been our story. The bowls of judgment should have been poured out upon us. But what does the scriptures tell us? The bowls of judgment were poured out on God himself in the person of his son on the cross, right? He received what we deserved. Do you see why the people who were receiving this judgment, God's people were not a part of it? Because the people of God, the only thing that's different is we're saying, I I can't save myself. I have no hope apart from Jesus. I want to be connected to Jesus The blood of the lamb is the only thing that's going to protect me. I'm going to run to Jesus for safety. And they've been protected from the place. Why? Because Jesus did something. Because God is pouring out on himself the judgment which we deserve. That's an amazing, amazing thing about Christianity. Because every single one of us has a day of reckoning. That's what the scripture sees. 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. But this passage is telling us there's a voice from the temple. There's a voice that is coming out from the temple and saying, It is done. Where's that voice from? The throne? Do you remember who's been on the throne in the book of Revelations? It's the lamb. The lamb that was slain. The lamb is saying, it is done. It is done. Of all the things, of all the things to give thanks and praise and worship to the Lord God who is holy. How often do we actually pray, We thank you and worship you because you are righteous. You are just. You will set all things right. You're going to wipe away every tear. Your judgment is the one thing I can trust. This is something we come back to over and over again. 
God is doing this not because he's just angry, because this is love. And he's giving everyone a warning. Hey, come before the day of my wrath comes. I want you to experience this love that I have shown through my son, the lamb who was slain, whose blood has been shed, who's not going to curse you with water that's poisoned by blood, but the blood that's going to make you clean. The God who says, I'm going to protect you from the burning, scorching sun. The God who says, I don't want you to experience estrangement from me, but have eternal joy in my presence. That's the invitation. That's the invitation for you today, whether that's for the first time or for the hundredth time, for us to go back and connect to this beautiful reality. Because as we cross through this, we get to look toward the new heaven, the new earth, Jerusalem. All of those good things come as we go through the hard stuff that are the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. Think about that this week. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank you. We thank you because some of us in here today need to be reminded it is done. Oftentimes we accuse ourselves or we find ourselves being accused that we're just not good enough. But your gospel tells us it's not about us being good. It's about us being humble. It's not about us being able to keep all your rules. But actually, what it's all about is being people of repentance, of humility, and saying, I have nowhere else to turn but to you. We ask that this morning you would comfort us in that truth. For those of us here who are trying to figure out whether we can believe this, may these words be words that challenge us as well as comfort us so that we can hear clearly the invitation you offer through the lamb who was slain. And for some of us here, maybe we just need to take that next step and we ask that, Father, by your spirit that would happen. In your son's name we pray. Amen.